The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. I find it hard to believe that no one on Balkans ever heard of a horror movie. There is something similar. A discipline known as Tirali Tech. It uses disturbing imagery to provoke an emotional response. They try and scare you to see how well you suppress your emotions. I don't understand why humans would feel compelled to frighten themselves. Gets the heart pumping. Cardiovascular activity would be more efficient. You never did give us your opinion of the movie. There were many medical inaccuracies. What did you think of the story? I thought the protagonist was interesting. Dr. Frankenstein? No, his creation. From my perspective, this was the story of an individual persecuted by humans because he was different. That's one way of looking at it. In many ways, the film seemed quite prophetic. The reaction of the villagers, for example, it was similar to the reception Vulcans received after landing on Earth. <clears throat> I don't recall anyone greeting the Vulcan ambassador with torches and pitchforks. Nevertheless, many humans reacted with fear and anger. They didn't know what to expect. I'm going to recommend that Ambassador Saval watch the film. You're kidding. I believe it would help Vulcans who've recently arrived on Earth. Maybe inviting her to movie night wasn't such a great idea. On the contrary, I'm looking forward to Bride of Frankenstein. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, August 2nd, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we'll be with you from now until noon. Oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into color color into black and white under the bedclothes everything will be alright and welcome to the show today in this midsummer heat in the middle of the summer you know when i was a kid robert this was the time of year for summer reruns on television oh yes and i think that's going to be pretty much our theme today we're going to be talking about the trends in tv and movies from when we were kids to make you know, maybe where they are today and what significance there might be behind it. We might be the first generation that could say we actually grew up with TV in the sense of having an ability to even look back on it and look at our reactions to the things we saw when we were a kid. So that's one of the things we're going to be talking about today. Uh, some shows that we enjoyed when we were growing up and what growing up with television was like for the first couple of generations in the 50s and the 60s. And we're even going to recommend a television show from the 1960s era, which we'll actually we'll save that one until we get to it, shall we, Robert? Okay, yeah, let's do it. And at the end of the show, we'll wind up with where we think television is heading today, what the trends are in drama, in, uh, in uh, the basic outlook of TV, and what kind of sense of life television is projecting. 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you want to join in on this conversation or write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. Now, uh, you know, Robert, reconnecting with old TV shows and comparing our reaction today to the same show, 
with how we recall feeling about that show, we talked about that a little off the air before we started considering this, and it was interesting. Um, because of the show we're going to be talking about later, something we you just discovered recently, I, I rediscovered, and I wondered what my reaction would be to some of these shows that I only saw as a child and then saw again as an adult. Did I have that same reaction? What was in those shows that we enjoyed? And, you know, another thing I noticed in this whole exercise is that after a while you can almost mark time by watching which celebrities are passing away or which ones retire or which ones, you know, who would have thought even by 2012, for example, that there wouldn't be any more Michael Jackson, for heaven's sakes, <laughs> you yes, know? Yes, indeed. And while the Rolling Stone are still, Stones are still going on tours, right? <laughs> And of course, let's be honest, it'd be impossible to recall and do justice, I think, even to a significant fraction of what maybe we did actually enjoy in TV. And so who knows where this might be going. This might become a recurring feature from time to time. We'll call it Hollywood Etc. That's what I like. I got that name from, uh, actually, the National Post was their entertainment section. I actually use that heading when I, when I put files, <laughs> clippings and stuff. That's where it goes. Hollywood, etc. That's where anything about uh, any matters entertaining go, including CRTC and industry, things like that. So, Robert, you had some interesting observations to make in this regard. Do you want to kick it off? Yeah, sure. Why don't I kick it off here and talk about the boob tube. The boob tube. As my father called it, and it had <laughs> nothing sexual connotations about it at all. It made you a boob, is what the TV did to uh, children back in those days, at, at least what the, my parents thought. So, I've grown up with TV. I, I know a lot about the shows. I spend a lot of time, <laughs> wasted, wasted hours, and some not wasted, in front of that boob tube. I was born in 61, and I can't say that I, I think I, that I experienced all that TV has to offer, but I've experienced, I would say, most. <laughs> As a simple matter of age, I've seen a lot on television. And my earliest remembrances of television had to be when I was just under about five years old, I'd say. I remember quite specifically watching The Friendly Giant. And that CBC personality, by the way, the, the person who played it... Um, was actually an American, and then the show started off in the United States and then migrated to Canada. That, right, I didn't know that. Yeah, and um, he did over 3,000 15-minute shows, of which 850 survived. Yeah, that was friendly with uh, Rusty the Rooster, wasn't it? And Jerome the Giraffe. Jerome the Giraffe, Giraffe and yeah. he'd always whistle them to the castle. Yes. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I didn't even have that one on my list, and it's, there it is. Yeah. It's in, in, on, in my mind right That there. was so important to me. That personality of the Friendly Giant portrayed, uh, Bob Holm played him. Mm-hmm. He was a comfortable, sedate, parental, and intellectual distraction. Uh, aired from 53 to 58 in the States, and then from 58 to 85 in Canada. That long, airing you over 3,000 episodes. That's probably why my kids saw it, too. Yeah. And so it's fresher in my memory, perhaps. You know, if I... If I were to consider its most essential element in my maturation, it would be my introduction to classical music. Um, albeit played by a rooster and a giraffe <laughs> and a giant, it was a window into another world of music because they played a lot of classical music, if you recall. Hmm. Now, growing up, I remember the, the tranquil music of the friendly giant, but also the, the troublesome reports of the national news, hosted by, at the time, Lloyd Robertson, Peter Kent, until finally uh, Knowlton Nash. And um, television had become not only a, a friendly diversion, but a window on the world later, I would understand, in that window 
was one colored by political leanings of the journalists, producers, and politicians who controlled our national broadcaster. But as a child growing up, I accepted what was shown to me tacitly. I didn't understand that um, some of these things had uh, ulterior motives. <laughs> why, why are you showing us this story and neglecting to show us that story? That only came well, later. First, you didn't even know there was another story that was being neglected. That's right. Now, I, That's trick. That's I grew up it. in St. John's, <laughs> Newfoundland, and back in the 60s, there were only two television channels, CTV and CBC. Uh, not unlike uh, here in Ontario, I imagine, though I think you probably had global or and a lot of access to American television. But there we had two choices, and that was it. Um, I found little time for the news as a child, I guess, and, and more for the entertainment. Uh, obviously, what kid wants to watch the news? I was an avid fan of Star Trek in the 60s, at the time that it was actually on. And I can distinctly remember my father taking delivery of our first color television in the late 60s when Star Trek was that, at that time in syndication. Mm-hmm. And my first question was, is Star Trek in color? And I was anticipating waiting for Star Trek to come on so that I could see if it was in color or not, because I didn't know. Oh, is that right? I've been watching it in black and white all the time. And although our TV was dominated by my mother who watched Coronation Street, which I watched too, because if (laughs) if that's all that's on, that's what you watch. Was that in color? Uh, Not at the beginning, no, no, um, in black and white. And other soaps such as General Hospital and As the World Turns, I got to watch those quite often and got right into them. Um, I watched them religiously and found myself gravitating to such programs as um, The Twilight Zone, The Outer Limits, The Land of the Giants, if people remember that, uh, Lost in Space. Anything of a science fiction nature captured my attention, as did many of the excellent crime dramas of the 60s and 70s, such as uh, Perry Mason, The FBI with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr. Cannon or Mannix. I could regale you with the names and memories of countless shows from that time, but suffice it to say that only a few have stood the test of time and have left a lasting memory, like Star Trek. And like all in the family, it's an introduction in politics. Unlike any newscaster documentary, that show was an eye-opener. It pitted Archie Bunker, the conservative, against Michael Stivick, the liberal, in a weekly battle of the minds. (laughs) (laughs) And MASH. We can all remember MASH. It was a bittersweet eye-opener into the world of war, a show my parents didn't allow me to watch, by the way, at a young age because of its sexual innuendo, Hot Lips Houlihan. But I was able to pick it up uh, in reruns. <laughs> of course, I enjoyed it. I particularly remember my totally father... Totally repressed as a child, eh? <laughs> totally. Yeah, that's why I am the way I am. I remember my father, he was a veteran of the Korean War, commenting that the show was nothing like the real thing, and he refused to watch it. He was disgusted by it. He said, that's not a portrayal of what happened at all. Uh, you know, the Americans didn't act like that. They were professional when they weren't blowing each other up. And, well, uh, my father used to say that about Hogan's Heroes, but it didn't stop him from watching it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the memories were different. Comedy. That was always a big, a big hit at our house. Remember Mary Tyler Moore? Mm-hmm. One of my favorites. Uh, Bob Newhart show. Love that. Rhoda, Barney Miller, and any number of the cutting-edge shows of the day. And I use the words cutting-edge deliberately. Any good comedy has to be cutting-edge, willing to push the envelope of decency and acceptability. The only reason we have some of the comedy we have today on television is because of shows like All in the Family, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman, or Soap. Soap was quite a, an avant-garde type of show as well in, in the themes that they dealt Completely with. Completely outrageous. 
Totally. And, yeah. and sold it, <laughs> which was the weird part about it. Yeah. I love that show, too. Yeah. Now, the cultural impact of television is obviously profound, but it's not unique. And I have to ask myself, as someone who's grown up on television, what people did for entertainment before the boob box, as uh, we call it. People before TV, of course, prior to the 30s. And TV has actually been around, uh, developed since uh, the turn of the uh, 20th century. Um, it has slow development and... Um, didn't get into people's houses until the 30s, but like you said at the opening, uh, it wasn't really common until the 50s. That's when, because you needed to have a lot of television transmitters. And right? they were very expensive. And um, in fact, as I understand it, color television was actually in, uh, invented in the late 1800s. They, yeah. knew, they knew how to actually do it in a lab, <laughs> but which shows you how important economics is to the development of these technologies. Um, would it ever have developed to the, issue, to the point it is today if it weren't for all of us demanding this stuff? and wanting it in our lives and wanting that technology to develop to the point where we can all afford it. Sure, and that technology, by the way, was the product of a lot of different scientists in a lot of different countries from, uh, uh, I think it's uh, Russia, uh, Austria, mm -hmm. United States, Japan. Um, but what did people do before television? And, of course, the common interest for everybody was books and theater. And it's this common interest that unites people from all cultures and creeds and races, uh, although television has accomplished this more than books and theater ever could. Almost everyone, everyone in the world has a shared cultural experience when it comes to television, although it may not be That's TV. I remember the first time I saw the movie Titanic was in Tokyo to a theater packed with over a thousand Japanese. We were all watching this American Hollywood production at the same time. And the same movie could be played on any television set at this moment. It has become a worldwide shared experience. In this sense, we're truly a global village in that, you know. And we're no longer divided by culture. We have a shared human culture. Now, people any, anywhere in the world can see Canadian programming, American programming, German programming, whatever they want to tune into. It's true. You know, I think the trend is almost uh, reversing, though. Um, there's a lot of people, for example, who come from the Middle East who live here in London, and that's all they watch is Middle Eastern television. They don't, don't even watch CBC or ABC, NBC, uh, CBS. They don't well, watch... Well, certainly understandable when they first get here. Sure, sure, it's in their language. Of course. You know, <laughs> but we're not sharing that, that same culture. And we don't watch their television. Yeah. There may be some very good uh, television from the Middle East or Africa or Asia. That's something we're going to comment on, yeah. uh, on the end, at, near the end of the show as well, how television is changing. You know, I don't... You can go anywhere in the civilized world and not meet people who haven't heard of Star Trek. Anywhere in the civilized world, you know. But then again, with every generation, there comes uh, a rift. Not many 20-year-old Canadians have ever heard of uh, the Friendly Giant or Mr. Dress-Up. Do you remember Mr. Dress-Up? Not as good as mm -hmm. the Friendly Giant, in my opinion. Although most would have heard of SpongeBob SquarePants <laughs> or uh, the Transformers or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. It was another generation. Yeah. They have their own nostalgia. And 20 years from now, I guess my kids will be talking about, oh, do you remember back then in the day of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? You know, And, you know, the stories we see on the TV and the big screen or even still read in books become our common cultural uh, leitmotif, a recurring cultural fixation point of them, which all, we can all discuss. And uh, we'll get into more of our discussion after we take a little break. Yeah, I just wanted to say, too, that, you know, history doesn't go much further back than this in terms of television, what we're going to hear right now. Oh, this, yes. This is a clip from a 1955 live broadcast. Think about that. They did these shows live, you know. 
performed live. And I remember live. watching them live. Yeah. Of The Honeymooners, yep. starring Jackie Gleason, Art Carney, and talking about, well, what else? Television. We'll be back right after this. Where's that, Ralph? Shut up, you troublemaker. <laughs> what I do? What, what? You know what you did. I'll tell you what you did. You had to go and buy Trixie another television set. Now Alice wants me to buy her one. And she wants to use my pool, my bowling, and my dues money to do it. Hey, how, how come Alice found out uh, about such a thing as television, Ralph? I, I thought you kept her in the dark on things like that. <laughs> I was down pricing those television sets, and they're pretty steep, pretty expensive. I can't afford one right now. I guess just for the next two or three months, I gotta go without television. Boy, I'm gonna miss it, too. It couldn't have come at a worse time. You realize that tomorrow afternoon, Captain Video takes off for Pluto! <laughs> with that thing and come in here and eat your dinner. Oh, oh, oh. look at it roll. Now we can watch Jackie Gleason while we eat. Our first television set. Dad just picked it up today. Do you have a television? Oh, yeah, you know, we have two of them. Wow, you must be rich. Oh, honey, he's teasing you. Nobody has two television sets. <laughs> hey, hey, I've seen this one. I've seen this one. This is a classic. This is uh, where Ralph dresses up as a man from space. What do you mean you've seen this? It's brand new. Yeah, well, I saw it on a rerun. It's a rerun. You'll find out. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> That's a classic in itself. Back to the Future. Back to the Future. Oh, I love that song. Uh, all, all three of them were fun. Yeah. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, The Honeymooners, I do remember watching the Jackie Gleason show and The Honeymooners. He would actually, he was an, or, um, a band, uh, an orchestra leader. Yes. I don't know if people remember, but um, Jackie Gleason um, orchestrated um, a full orchestra, uh, beautiful music, very romantic uh, music, and then uh, they would have The Honeymooners on, and he would actually come out after The Honeymooners and talk to the audience. Uh, you know, and say goodnight. And mm -hmm. um, that's when it was live. I still remember that. You actually saw them do that once on their Christmas show where they mm -hmm. where they stepped out of character and actually addressed the audience. But that was the only time I ever saw it recorded. Yeah? Yeah. Now, I don't know if uh, people can uh, go back to the time when Canadian television versus American television was as blatant as the nose on your face. You could actually see via the production quality, the acting, directing, lighting, um, the difference between Canadian and American productions. I don't know if you can recall that. I remember that. those days so clearly, yeah. it's not funny. And then lately, the last couple of decades, you can't tell the difference nope. anymore. No. Nope. What um, happened? Um, tax credits. <laughs> <laughs> quite, li quite literally, Well, yes. better than, di than direct subsidy. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. Like the, they filmed The X-Files in uh, Vancouver, even though that doesn't really make it Canadian. I think that the expertise in Canada, the technical expertise, has, has grown by leaps and bounds. And uh, But I certainly remember back in the 70s, you, you could turn on the TV and you'd see a television show, and the lighting it was so harsh, you go, oh, that's Canadian. Sure enough, it was almost acting, like home home movies. Oh, yeah. It, 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 just a little bit better, but yeah. uh, and the sound was sort of tinny as well. But, you know, I don't want to rain on the Canada's parade when it comes oh. to television, because, you know, we actually produced 
a lot of good television, even going back back to the 70s and the 60s. One of my favorite shows was in the 60s, and it was called The Forest Rangers. And um, it caught my attention as a young boy because it was a bunch of boys hanging out in a fort. <laughs> in a fort mm -hmm. with an Indian, um, uh, Joe Two Rivers, and... Uh, an RCMP officer and a uh, forest ranger, and they would go through their adventures. Sort of every young kid's uh, adventure. Yeah, sure. Yeah. And uh, that was a great show, and I really enjoyed it. And I thought it was well produced and um, decently acted and written. Now, you were a kid when you first saw that. Do you still feel that way about it when you look at them today? As a matter of fact, I have seen it uh, recently, yeah. maybe a couple of years ago. I, I found it online, and I watched an episode of it. Um, no, I can't really watch it because you know I'm over 50 now, and I, I really can't watch a show like that. But it was nostalgic to go back and see um, Gordon Pinsent playing in that role uh, as the RCMP officer and uh, uh, Joe Two Rivers and how they portrayed a, an Indian back then. And, and, and I look back at these shows with the eye of a 50-year-old now, and it's very interesting to have a different perspective on the shows that you grew up with. You look at it from a completely different eye. And some of them still stand the test of time. The Beachcombers. I thought that was a great show when I was watching that back in uh, in the 70s. And it started in 72 with Bruno Gerussi and uh, if, who can't recall Relic. Um, a great <laughs> character, by the way. And um, then again, there were some misses. The King of Kensington. I It was a good attempt at a soap. I like that show. Yeah. There's one I didn't mind. It was a good attempt yeah. at a situational comedy. And uh, not bad. But certainly, uh, I don't think it stood the test of time. You couldn't watch a rerun of that without, I don't know, gagging, maybe. Really? Yeah. Mm -hmm. But we, we've come up with some good shows uh, recently. Have you seen Corner Gas? Corner Gas? Yeah. I enjoy Corner Gas, yeah. but a lot of people I know can't stand that really? show. Oh, yes. I talked to a lot of them that don't like that show at all. It's and, not. I, I enjoyed that. And I know from my earlier days, in terms of Canadian television, I liked, just as you were talking, it came right in my head, Wayne and Schuster. Oh, Wayne and Schuster, great comedy. Uh, um, yeah. they, were, they were awesome. That, to me, was yep. the pinnacle of Canadian talent at the time, at least for a period there, you know. And then to actually see them on the Ed Sullivan show, yep. then you knew Canada was in the world's eye, you know. Yeah, no, they were, they were good talent. And SCTV is another example of a, a good comedic uh, television uh, show as well coming out of Canada. Um, but other than that, you've got uh, the Red Green Show, uh, a little more recent, obviously from the 90s, but uh, I thought that was a uh, decent comedy coming out of Canada. Uh, now, here's one that did not uh, appeal to me at all, and that's The Kids in the Hall. I don't know if you uh, have any uh, thoughts on The Kids Never in the Hall. Never watched it, no. I found the humor to be coarse, crude, vulgar, and just not my cup of tea, but that's just me. I don't know. A lot of people probably liked it. Um, but in Canada, I thought that we excelled in one particular area of television that the Americans still had yet to develop properly, and that was news. News oh. and documentaries. Things like um, The Nature of Things with David Suzuki. Now, as much as I dislike David Suzuki's uh, political leaning, since he went uh, a little off the nut there for <laughs> after that show... I really enjoyed his nature of things, and that opened up a window of science. I, I liked the way that the CBC was putting together programs to turn people onto science and uh, to nature, and I uh, really liked it. And the news programs of the day, The National, W5, The Fifth Estate, excellent production, excellent journalism, excellent reporting, I thought. W5, I distinctly remember. Yeah. yeah. And what about, um, just to get back 
to uh, some of the situational comedies. That remember the movie, or the, rather the TV show, started in 1981, Seeing Things, with um, uh, Louis Del Grande. No, you don't remember don't, that. Don't don't even think I ever heard of it. We'll probably never see it again. But I actually thought <laughs> I that think that you're was seeing a good things. show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, and um, game shows. Game shows, I thought, were another area that Canada did well on, though the prizes were usually, you can take home, you take home the board game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. While down in the States, if you had the prices right, you know, you could win a trip around the world. A Canadian game show winner would um, uh, might win a, a $50 gift certificate yeah. or something. <laughs> but remember these shows? A definition? Robert, I got to be honest with you. I never, ever in my life watch game shows. Yeah. Don't watch reality TV because to me that's game shows. Ah, I know? don't like reality t- TV either. Yeah. The only one reality. I ever watched, like I told you once before in the show, and that was Win Ben Stein's Money. <laughs> that's that a great was show. it. Yeah. <laughs> but what about bumper stumpers? Couldn't, never even heard of even, it. Never even heard oh, of it. They, they'd show a license plate, and you had to decipher what the uh, the license plate was. Um, or front page challenge. Another great show, I thought. I have to. Oh, now you caught me. Okay, I watched one. <laughs> that one I did watch. That's not so yeah. much a game show, though. Um, no, it was sort of. I saw that more as a ch- you know challenge your knowledge. And always they had an interesting little debate. I forget who all was on that show. Pierre Burton. Yeah. Um, oh, who was the fellow who was the atheist too? Um, one of the one of the people that was a regular panelist Gordon someone I can't think of the name but uh, ah, they yes. got they got into some interesting debates every now and then over issues like that just in the middle of nowhere right? yeah. and that's what made the show interesting yeah the, if you don't recall what would happen was they would bring in a guest who would stand behind the panel yeah. and they had to ask questions hidden, hidden from the panelists hidden from the panel yeah. they'd ask questions and he'd answer uh, yes or no try to disguise his voice if he was uh, famous and um, they had to find out who that was interesting something i just noticed the two game shows that now i've admitted to watching have one thing in common why yeah. i think i'm watching them it's the characters on them oh yes it's yeah. like Billy ben, van you know and in the other case ben stein and the yeah. people he was on with you know um they were great. They made it Jimmy Kimmel. He was he was he was worth watching alone, right yeah. there. There was great chemistry yeah. in a yeah. lot of the, these shows. I don't know if you remember this one, and I, I don't know if this is the actual name of it, but it had to do with charades, and it may have been called charades. But I loved that show because it taught me how to do charades, <laughs> and there was a great chemistry with all the cast. But a Canadian show oh, again. No, 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 you, no, you caught me with the third one. <laughs> okay, you know what it was. Remember. Well, uh, Oh, who? Bill Brady, Paul Souls, and all <gasps> on the head. Oh, Souls, what was it yes. called? Um, and it was a, kind of a, a charades thing they had on near supper time on the weekends. Act Fast? Was that the name of it? I don't recall that one. Or something like that. But it was a game show with local personalities. Again, the personalities, you see. Um, that you just had to... Sometimes you had to guess what an object was. People would st- send in a strange object. I remember that. Mm. And you, they'd all look at it, wondering if the tool from the the pre-century or it's a farming tool and nobody knows what it is right very interesting show paul souls i think was also on another show i like i liked it i think it was called this is the law yeah that's that was it oh yeah this is the law and um it was a great show of this this um stooge would be minding his own business and you'd watch him a video of him doing uh, ordinary mundane things and then after a minute or so a cop would come up behind him and put his hand on his shoulder. Yes. And, and you'd uh, have to figure out what, you'd was, have to figure what, out what, what he broke. Did he break, yes. And they were silly, silly laws, you know. Uh, that I, I, I wish they, they still existed because um, 
I think you can actually probably revive that show and do it today because we certainly have a lot of silly laws out there today. You know, Paul Souls became the voice for Spider-Man in the first uh, cartoon. Do you remember that? That horrible, uh, but watchable in a strange sense, Spider-Man cartoon, a Canadian production again, and Rocket Robin Hood. Yes. <laughs> another Canadian production of um, very, very, I don't know, cheap production, but still quite watchable yeah, for some well, reason. That, exactly. I was going to say, I, I found them watchable even though they weren't the highest, what you would call, animation quality. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, there's a lot of great television, and I think that you're going to be talking about a show very soon after we come back from the break. Mm. Uh, a show that I recently discovered, and I'll let you introduce well, it later on. Yeah, well, I guess that would be about now, wouldn't it? Because we're coming down to the bottom of the hour. Okay, well, let's take this little break then. And um, uh, Well, no, I'm going to introduce it first. Okay. Uh, you know, I had a whole list of, of shows I was going to zip through here, but you took up my whole quarter hour there. <laughs> With the, which is why I say we're going to have to do more of these in the future. Yeah. So we can yeah, talk Yeah, listen about up, other guys. Yeah. There's two old men reminiscing yeah. about television. Great. <laughs> well, there's a lot of shows that I was considering even mentioning. But interestingly, when we were talking on the on the phone a couple weeks ago, we just out of the blue, remember, we were talking about a show like this and, and some of the TV we watched. And out of the blue, in into my head pops the name Honey West, a show that I used to watch when I was a kid in the 1960s. And um, you'd never heard of it. I had never even heard of it. And then the next thing I find out, we both went online, we found some episodes, and, the ne- and you're telling me you're watching them and, and you're enjoying them thoroughly. Oh, totally. And um, I've watched them all now, and I just uh, I think there's 30. Yeah, there's just one made. season. We'll talk about that later. But uh, we'll tell folks more about the show later when we come back. But coming up next, both on this side of the break and when we return very shortly, A Taste of Honey, Honey West, our spotlight pick of little-known TV gems from the mid-1960s. We'll be back. Mrs. Mainwaring, we're returning your limousine, your chauffeur's uniform, and your coat. Unfortunately, we lost your $50,000. We did not get the negative back, and the blackmailers got away. should have reported him to the hotel when it happened. But you know how quick people are to think the worst. Well, you shouldn't run like a fugitive. You're the victim. You said they'd keep coming back for more money. As long as he has the negative, yes, ma'am. One cocktail, one dance. That's how they operate. They pick on a rich widow. A foolish widow. Or a married woman alone. You're sure it was the same man? He lighted a match. I saw his face. It's the same man who was in the photograph with you. A hidden camera. The terrible thing, I was flattered. A younger man stealing into my room, sweeping me into his arms. And getting your picture taken. Three for a quarter or one for $50,000. But why wait almost a year to blackmail me? They play it safe, scatter, then move in for the payoff. Give us a little time. We'll do our best. We've already done our worst. Be honest with me. You don't know where to look. If you put it on the line, no. Now, that was from the very first 
episode of Honey West that aired in 1965, produced by ABC. And when I saw that, you know, I remembered it being even better than when I first saw it as a kid. You know, and I, I would have watched them in 1965 when they first came out. I didn't realize how good they actually were, but of course back then I didn't have um, the background against which I might judge a show like that. And I was wondering, even of the things you were saying earlier, Robert, what it tells us about our own, what what our tastes in television tell us about our sense of life and Mm -hmm. what we think about life in general, which will be the big conclusion of the show today. But when I saw this, and I heard that scene and a few others, you know, like, unfortunately, we lost your $50,000. We didn't get the negative back and the blackmailers (laughs) got away, right? And I'm thinking, what kind of private eyes are these? And they say, we'll do our best. We've already done our worst. And if you put it on the line, no, we don't know where to look. So I'm thinking, honest private eyes, you know, but uh, no promise of a specific result, just a commitment to do their best. And objective to a fault, you know. They didn't need anybody to tell them they did their worst. You know, that's. I noticed you were surprised by the opening of that first episode. Honey West gets it over the head and gets knocked out. It wasn't the hero, the hero thing that you were expecting, right? First two minutes of the very first episode, yes. she gets cold cocked yeah. by by some guy out of the shadows, right on the head, knocks her right out. And then, just, wow! Yeah, just when you're thinking, oh, the heroes arrived and saved the day. That's how this show's going to go. Uh, uh-uh. uh, yeah. it goes a totally different direction. And, um, you know, they've already done their worst, which, of course, referred to losing all that money and letting the bad guys get away. And, you know, no, we don't know what the hell we're doing, so hire us. That's basically about as offbeat uh, a reason to hire somebody, and that's how the story started. Now, of course, if you're just tuning in, we're talking about Honey West, a half-hour weekly black-and-white TV show that played for only a single season in 19, between 1965 and 1966, starring Anne Francis in the lead role of Honey West. The show also featured regulars John Erickson as her partner Sam Bolt, Irene Hervey as Aunt Meg, and Bruce, the ocelot, as himself. And this is something I remembered her when I watched that show the first time. I thought she always had two ocelots. Turns out it was just one. Now, what in my mind would make me think there were two? What, 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 what would create a transposition <laughs> like that? You know what I mean? It's just funny to test your memory, right? Yeah. But I can't say how delighted I was not only to rediscover this gem, um that I so vividly and, i got to admit, sometimes inaccurately recall from my TV childhood days, but also to learn that it would, uh, you know, sort of appeal to my taste in ent- entertainment still today. And something that I saw formed at a very early age. And I'm starting to wonder, how early is it that we actually form our taste in television and in, in the kind of things that we enjoy watching? And how much do we really change in life? I'm starting to think maybe not that much. Uh, you know, it gets kind of strange. Here's how the show was described online. They, they describe Honey West as this. After the death of her father, sexy Honey West took over as high-tech private detective firm. As TV's first title role female private eye, Honey West would take on any tough case. She could handle herself mingling with millionaires just as well as scaling a 30-foot wall. Along with rugged Sam Bolt and her pet ocelot Bruce, Honey West was sure to solve the case. This short-lived series made television history by casting Anne Francis as the first-ever woman lead private eye. So, you know, there's a cultural observation on my part, too. It never even occurred to me that female private eyes were anything unusual. I just took this show for what it was, then and today. That was my attitude with Star Trek when they first put on... They were the first thing on TV that had a multicultural crew. I didn't know that. First interracial kiss. Yes. 
That but you too. know, I was you talking know? to you on the phone last night about mm. the firsts of television. Well, if you go back to the 60s, television was brand new. So almost anything they did included the first, if you think of it. Say that again? Um, Television, of course, yeah. back in the early 60s was brand new. So yeah. if, you, if you create oh, okay, a new show, you're, you're going to have a first in there somewhere. This is the first time you have a, a woman PI, a first time this happened, a first time, you know. Well, I think it's significant, though, after television has been on for a decade or two, to say that that never happened. Mm-hmm. Or that there never was a black-white kiss. Or that ne- those things never happened. They happened in the movies, perhaps, and in other art and other theater, but not on television. Mm-hmm. And that, that, I think, is... I don't think the statement is so much that it's a first as think of what the culture was at the time. Oh, true, yes. You know, and what maybe they were coming up against. But then again, back in the 60s was uh, an age of women's liberation. Yes, and uh, didn't you tell me your daughter, first thing she noticed when she saw Honey West, she she identified her as a strong woman, strong individual, strong character. Oh, there was a scene where she was talking to uh, the bad guy, and the bad guy uh, had a gun on her, and she was playing a cigarette girl, so she had this tray of cigarettes. The guy puts a gun in her face, and so what does she do? Throws the cigarette tray right in his face and starts beating him up with her karate. <laughs> yes. My daughter loved it. Shazam, she says. <laughs> I'll tell you one thing. That was one thing she did. She took action when it was necessary. And, you know, they screwed up a lot, which was unusual. You didn't see that happening in too many police shows in that way, especially at that oh, time. They got defeated uh, several yeah. times by the crooks, yeah. found some interesting trivia and stuff about Honey West I didn't know about until last night, Robert. Um... First of all, the character was created by Gloria and Forrest E. Skip Fickling under the pseudonym G.G. Fickling in the late 1950s. So it was a character brought in from another, another uh, actually a book and, and series. Series of books, yes. Yes, and West was one of the first female private eyes to ever appear on television. And she first played the character in the second season episode of Burke's Law entitled Who Killed the Jackpot. Saw that, it was excellent. Mm-hmm. And the character was already developed right, right up to that point. Honey West was intended to be the American equivalent of the popular characters Emma Peel and Kathy Gale in the British series The Avengers, and that's where they got a lot of their... Is that right? Their, um, she excelled. Yes. And it was produced by Aaron Spelling, and they talk about how they wanted to get originally Honor Blackman to, uh, to play the role, right? And... Um, where she played Kathy Gale in The Avengers, and apparently she also played uh, Pussy Galore in Goldfinger. Blackman turned the role down, and Francis got the role because of that. And, uh, you know, you're talking about uh, the presence of her ocelot. These are not poor detectives. They're fairly well off, not maybe wealthy, but certainly on the upper score, wouldn't you say? Oh, yes. And um, she had this... uh, Ocelot in her apartment, which I always thought was cool, and you thought it was a little bit of a, how did you put it? A contrivance. A contrivance? Yeah. I think it was meant there for a little more. It says here, Honey's alluring feline qualities were reflected in her animal print wardrobes and the apartment decor, and that was part of what that cat was there for, (laughs) Uh, right? Beautiful cat, in fact, and that car she was driving, that Cobra. Uh, Shelby Cobra. Yeah, nice, nice machine. But here is something interesting. Uh, the show was canceled after just one season. And you know why that was? First, it was competing with Gomer Pyle, USMC. Oh, right? And second, the network reportedly decided it would be cheaper to import the Avengers. And that's what they did. And run it in the same time slot rather than keep Honey West. So that's how the Avengers came to North America. And, here, and interestingly, um, Frances earned, uh, she got a Golden Globe Award. She won for the role. Honey West, and Best Actress Emmy nomination 
for th- for the one show in the one season. I remember Anne so, Francis. The first time I saw her was in Forbidden Planet. She played the daughter, if you recall. That's correct. Yeah. And, and she only died last year. Died last year on January second of cancer. And um, interestingly, she. You know, you asked me once. You said, "How come she's not in so many movies?" Right? You mm-hmm. didn't see. She didn't do that many. No, she didn't. Uh, she did. A, she did a few. Uh, enough, I, I must say. Uh, the ones I have, I have "Bad Day at Black Rock," which she does with uh, Spencer Tracy. Excellent movie. Of course, "Forbidden Planet." Right. And uh, she's also appeared in that I've seen in Colombo a few times, and she appeared in two episodes. Apparently, two of the classics they say of Twilight Zone, 1959. And uh, she said those were among her favorite roles, which is interesting because that goes into the, into the uh, what we would call the romantic. Uh, I think on one of those episodes of the Twilight Zone, she played across from uh, John Erickson. Did she? Yeah, yeah. Didn't I? Didn't I call you up once? And, hey, there's John Erickson <laughs> and Anne right Francis too. playing across each other. Isn't that funny? And I understand he's still alive today. Is that right? And um, he actually posed for a Playgirl magazine <laughs> once. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? <laughs> but anyways, you know, this show, if you ever get to watch it, check it out. This show has style. It's got a style. It's got a pace that's uh, in the space of, of the 27-minute episodes that they were, because it was just a half-hour show, you feel like you've watched an hour and a half of content, don't you? Like, there's a lot in them. There's a story. There's a plot. It moves. Yep. It has a drama, it's got a very clever sense of humor, and it uses it in a way that it doesn't demean the main characters, you know? Like some of them self-effacing. I I hate that kind of humor when you laugh at yourself. No. They actually kick themselves in the butt when they fail. Um, They uh, have absolutely no guilt when it comes to their competence, which is a joy to watch. And there was a no-nonsense style that that was uh, prevalent in a lot of the 60s shows. You know, I, I found myself thinking when we were preparing for this, and I remember asking you on the phone, because I said, you know, if you just look at this show superficially really quickly, you don't see anything special there. It's actually kind of run-of-the-mill looking at first glance. And so I, I asked you, I said, what is it particularly about this show that seems so attractive? And, you know, that, I mean, there's no super special effects. They don't have superpowers. But what's so different about it? And you replied right away. You said, because they're competent and they know it. Mm-hmm. That was your instant reply. And they're guiltless about and, it. And you also, that's guiltless. And that's why I think I thought, first thing I thought was, this might be something Ayn Rand would have enjoyed. Mm-hmm. I actually think she was probably a fan of the show, which we'll find out after the break. Because it's almost like uh, Mickey Spillane in a way. that, And it's got the black and white photography playing to that contrast for effect. You know, it really works. I don't, th- I don't think this show should ever have been, don't ever colorize it. No. Um, great jazz scores unusual, sometimes really moving, and they carry along with the action um, and the background music. The unexpected, which surprised me for a show of its time, the twists, setbacks, failures, stuff that would happen. Uh, you know, one show I like is one of the humorous ones. I did a comedy called uh, The Perfect Uncrime, I think. Yes. And uh, a clerk in a bank uh, hires them to unrob the bank and put the money back. Put the money in. back, yes. And then they get caught in the middle of the unrobbery and they're 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 there looking at the guy. Um, we're putting the money back, honest, right? Yeah. And then you think just as they're getting caught, oh no, it's a twist. The people, the bank manager and people are caught up. They're there to rob the bank. <laughs> <laughs> and these are the kind of things that would happen. Yep. And it was a serious show. It would always have that serious undertone with that over overlayer of that just unexpected. And a few of the episodes were a little more comedy than drama, but I think that only added to that sense of values that the show just seemed to project. I thought each episode was a fun ride 
from start to finish. Yeah, there, there, were, there were no bad episodes. No, no. amazing. And, well, uh, with Anne Francis, I mean, you couldn't go wrong. Well, she was quite hot. <laughs> well, she is that too. But you know what? She was quite, um, considering her how they could have dressed her, she was, they, they played it very conservative. In most of most of the scenes. Oh, yes. Yeah, Except yeah. when she went undercover occasionally. She always dressed sophisticated. And, you know, the thing that kept coming up in the show that you just don't see often, um, they were very concerned about keeping their good relationship with the police and keeping their license, you know, their, their private eye license. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw them getting paid and, and feeling good about getting paid and getting their checks. Oh, mm-hmm. that's great, you know. Um, you, you thought the pet was high, high, you know, like sort of contrived. Bruce, you know, the ocelot, but I'm thinking high-maintenance pet, yeah, for a high-maintenance private eye, that kind of character, it almost fits in a way, you know? Oh, it fit, but it was an obvious um, uh, what do you think contrivance. Of, what do you think of the technology and the gadgets that they would use to eavesdrop I wonder on if that was and, an, uh, a, a, an homage to uh, the James Bond at the yeah. time, you know, because they were always having their little secret cameras and, and walkie-talkies built into their glasses and, and things like that. Mm. Uh, the cute cutesy yeah but if what private eye doesn't have his own little uh, stash of secret devices <laughs> well it was um, and of course there was obviously some kind of romantic undertone going on between the two of them there was a tension there yeah and and you you made sure you got to see it but you never saw that you know carried out you always just saw them in they were always business like let's put it that oh, way oh yeah for example sam she'd come out wearing some sort of stole and, mm-hmm. and looking like a million bucks and sam would take notice of it and compliment her you know <laughs> well, like I, wow that kind of a thing well i thought he'd say he said boy that better be worth 40 bucks <laughs> <laughs> when you think of the dollar value at the time right she was always spending money on uh, on clothes and he was always questioning her um, spending habits yes and i liked uh, i liked the way they would swing from from um, scene to scene they didn't waste any any time, uh, you know that mid-sentence segue that they would do. Yeah, and uh, that was a that was a great contrivance. Again, yes, once again, again, what they would do is um, they'd end one scene by by saying something, and then it would start the next scene. Yes, well, there's one where Aunt Meg is telling the two of them because they're fighting. She says, "You know, you two ought to get married." Then you can argue, and then the then the scene splits to to hit to Sam. The next word is legally. Yes, <laughs> that's how we got to do things legally, <laughs> right? And I'm thinking that was funny. It just clever. It just worked so well. Yeah. And the other great thing about this show was the villains were not stupid people. No, they were intelligent. Yeah. They would catch them in what they were doing. They would play it maybe the way you'd you'd expect somebody to play it. So, you know. And it was great fun watching all of the bit characters coming from uh, other uh, series at the time. Yeah. There were some people in there who played, played in Star Trek, for example. Oh, a lot of the characters from there. You know, Dick Clark showed up in the Dick second Clark, last episode. Yep. And play in a straight role. We're Playing not talking... Role. Just very interesting people that showed up on this show. And, you know, watching favorite shows from periods as long as a half century ago has a strange psychological effect, Robert. On the one hand, the characters created by those shows remain immortal. They never change, eh? But the actors and actresses and everyone dies and passes on. And, and and so you get mixed feelings. You get this sense of the permanence of the show and a sense of loss at seeing the actors go who embodied these characters, you know? I, re- I remember feeling really bad, particularly, on the day I heard that Peter Falk passed away. Yes, very much so. He and, became a, uh, and a, a person. Columbo, yeah. Part of your life. The art survives, the creators do not. The characters are eternal, the writers and actors are not. And I think that kind of reflects on all of our mortality. When we come back after this break, some concluding comments and observations. 
do for a vacation. In jail, if you don't play this one right. If that's your idea of a joke, I don't think it's funny. There is no Mrs. E.J. Jones of Beverly Hills. Well, where you've been looking. For a private eye, you don't see very good. Her husband's very big in the market. She spends money like Niagara. Yeah. I'd like to see her. All right. The blonde, right over there. That's your Mrs. E.J. Jones? That's right, and I see about 150 grand cool take. I see Honey West, private eye. And that man over there, that's her partner, Sam Bolt. We got trouble, Sonny. We got trouble. Oh, it's hot down here. It's gonna get hotter. Get a white nut TV set. You know I watch football highlights every week at this time. I know, but in a few minutes, Channel 13 is rerunning that special on pollution with Jack Lemmon. And I want to learn anything about pollution. I don't have to learn it from no millionaire actor. He's got nothing better to do than sit around in his stuff dreaming up causes. If he wants to unpollute something, let him unpollute the movies, huh? All them nudies. Archie, we're always watching football. I think it's important that we learn a little bit about our polluted environment. You're polluting my environment. Now get away from my set. Can't we just, can't we at least sit down like rational people and discuss this? Discuss? Why would you, as always, everything got to be like a meeting? Because huh? in a meeting, people sit down together and exchange ideas. Okay. Okay, sit down then, huh? Yeah. Let me hear your idea again. Okay, I want us to watch Jack Lemmon and a group of famous scientists discuss pollution and ecology on Channel 13. Good. And I want to watch football highlights on Channel 2. Now, guess what's gonna happen? <laughs> You're gonna watch football highlights on Channel 2. Meeting adjourned. Absolutely hilarious. Yeah, it was a great show, All it, in the Family. You know, I... I, I uh, well, there's one problem you got to say that's fast disappearing. Who gets to watch what on TV, We right? had those fights in our home. Yeah. You know, today you can have five people all sitting on the same couch watching five different things on their iPods. Oblivious <laughs> to the person right beside them. That's how yeah. it's getting, you know. And you, did you notice in that clip that neither Archie nor Michael wanted, were watching any scripted material, but, but both wanted to watch reruns? Michael, a rerun of a pollution show, and Archie wanted to watch football highlights, which was another rerun. Mm -hmm. So obviously reruns are alive and well. I don't know if we should be calling them that anymore. Ran into a funny thing last night. I was afraid you might be bringing this into the show today yourself, because I know it's from one of your favorite books, Ayn Rand's uh, book on romanticism. Oh, the Romantic Manifesto. The Romantic Manifesto, which actually spoke to what we were just been talking about, including Honey West and some of the shows in our opener. And I was amazed at what it said. And um, in 1969, she, she published an essay, What is Romanticism?, which offered, I thought, some meaningful insight into what we've been talking about, especially about Honey West. And she writes, and this is in 1969, remember when this show aired, 1965-6. Mm -hmm. Romanticism is a category of art based on the recognition of the principle that man possesses the faculty of volition. In other words, romantic literature is that which recognizes people have free will, basically. They make choices, and what happens is the result of their choice. 
In the field of popular literature, romanticism virtues and flaws may be seen in a more simplified and obvious form. Popular literature is fiction that does not deal with abstract problems. It takes moral principles as the given, accepting certain generalized common-sense ideas and values as its base. Popular fiction does not raise or answer abstract questions. It assumes that people know what they need to know in order to live and proceeds to show these adventures in living. Here's interesting. Detective, adventure, science fiction novels, and westerns belong, for the most part, to the category of popular fiction. Their emphasis is on action, but their heroes and villains are abstract projections and a loosely generalized view of moral values, of a struggle between good and evil, is what motivates the action. As far as their fiction aspects are concerned, movies and television, by their nature, are media suited exclusively to romanticism. Isn't that interesting? Mm -hmm. To abstractions, essentials, and drama. That might be why doing Atlas Shrugged is so difficult. It's far more than just that, right? Unfortunately, she writes, both media came too late. The great day of romanticism was gone, and only its sunset rays reached a few exceptional movies. Romanticism vanished from the movies and never reached television, except in the form of a few detective series, which are now also gone, which was just happening right at that period. Honey West was one of the last ones to go. What remains is the occasional appearance of cowardly pieces, and this scared me, whose authors apologize for the romantic attempts by means of comedy, or mongrel pieces whose authors beg not to be mistaken for advocates of human values or human greatness by means of coyly, militantly commonplace characters who enact world-shaking events and perform fantastic feats, particularly in the realm of science. The nature of this type of scenario can best be encapsulated by a line of dialogue on the order of, quote, Sorry, baby, I can't take you to the pizza joint tonight. I've got to go back to the lab and split the atom, end quote. <laughs> what does that remind you of? Eureka? Chuck? Uh, a whole host of modern shows that are exactly that. I could almost hear the characters on Eureka say that very line. Yep. And, and I like those shows. But she would consider them a, a host of the naturalist variety. Yes. Right? And uh, we began our show today, interestingly enough, with the characters of Enterprise uh, discussing the horror movie genre, and Frankenstein in particular. How interesting that in the same essay, Rand should write this. <laughs> Beyond the point of helpless determinism, the field of literature, both serious and popular, have been taken over by a genre compared to which romanticism and naturalism are clean, civilized, and innocently rational. <laughs> The horror story. <laughs> the modern ancestor of this phenomenon is Edgar Allan Poe. Its archetype or purest aesthetic expression is Boris Karloff movies. Popular literature, more honest in this respect, presents its horrors in the form of physical monstrosities. In serious literature, the horrors become psychological and bear less resemblance to anything human. This is the literary cult of depravity. Such writers are not presenting their view of life. They are not looking at life. What they are saying is that they feel as if life consisted of werewolves, Draculas, and Frankenstein monsters. 
in its basic motivation. This school belongs to psychopathology more than to aesthetics. <laughs> Can you imagine? Ouch. So if you like horror movies, I guess you're a psychopath, according to Ayn Rand. That was a pretty damning statement, wouldn't you say? Well, yes. As a matter of fact, I, I just strike home because I don't particularly like horror movies. I find them campish and foolish. I generally feel that way, too, and the, the odd time I, I like one is because of some other element yes. to it entirely. The acting and the writing. The acting, or maybe it has a good story. There are yeah. some with good stories and that have a secondary uh, something of substance to it, sure. let's put it you that look way. past the campish horror elements and uh, enjoy the other elements. But it seems to suggest that what you watch on TV can be a barometer for yourself in terms of what would it your 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 social your social attitudes your um, your moral standards? I don't even know sense Something, of life sense of life certainly, but uh, certainly worth looking at. And I thought it was fun doing that today, Robert. Hope you enjoyed it too. I did. I'd like to revisit some uh, other shows we haven't even touched upon yet, but uh, got a whole another point in the here. future. And uh, don't know if we should ever be using that word rerun anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Is anything a rerun if it's the first time you've heard it, just because it has been aired before? Mm. I don't know. I guess that's all it means, right? Anyways, we've got a rerun for another week, and we'll be back next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Till then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the clothes, everything will be... Nowhere the run, nowhere the hide. I like it being one of those movies, you know, be... Crescent Heights was a peaceful community until Amy Andersano moved in. Hello, I'm watching you, Amy. Oh my God! She went to the police, but they couldn't help. I'm sorry, he hasn't done nothing wrong. So she went to Detective Pablo Francisco. What's going on? He's trying to kill me, Pablo! Double the action. Triple the excitement. Get down! More the excitement. Get down again! With the help from his Mexican girlfriend, Rosa. Don't worry, Amy, we'll kick his ass, eh? I got color ID.